Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 395. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week on the show, dragons. Not the Komodo variety, not pot-smoking puff down by the sea, and not Double Dragon 2, with Billy and his brother once again saving his girlfriend from renegade girlfriend-stealing ninjas. Dude, what is it with renegade ninjas and other people's girlfriends? Nope. This week we yank dragons out of the fantasy worlds of Tolkien, Game of Thrones, etc., and explore this simple question. What would we do today if we discovered a dragon? But first, a hundred-word Drabble. Drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Give it a shot. Write and post it in the Drabblecast discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. That's where I peruse each week for good, fan-written stories to run on the show. This week's Drabble comes from listener M.K. Apache, and it's called Dream of the Dragon. Here goes. I dream of the dragon. It rises when I sleep, trumpeting the beginning of the end. Work seems pointless when the future is so dark, but what else can I do? Ella, my wife, has started to see the cracks. I'm showing the strain. I see her worried eyes when I pour just one more drink, trying to dull the vivid memories of my visions. I see the bleak future, what will become of the human race. I see what rises from the depths. I dream of the dragon. And the dragon knows. The dragon waits. And dreams of me. That leads us into this week's story by Dino Buzzati. Buzzati's a writer you may not know about because it's hard to find his work, particularly his short stories translated from Italian. But he was an internationally known Italian novelist, short fiction writer, journalist, author of novels such as Larger Than Life, A Love Affair, and the amazingly powerful The Tartar Step. He died in Milan in 1972, and as editor of a podcast that claims to bring you weird fiction, I feel like it's my duty sometimes not to let strange, undervalued authors like Buzzati go unnoticed. Longtime fans of the show know I'm a big fan of Saki, another short story author who absolutely would have been all over the potosphere if there'd been one in the late 19th century. Buzzati's short stories are a far different breed, though. Darker, certainly, but no less absurd and fantastic. He's kind of like Tolstoy, or maybe Dickens, but strained through a heavy Kafka filter. Buzzati's short stories ultimately often circle around the idea of doom, but that's never really the point. It's more about the fantastic and ridiculous ways that we arrive at doom, whether that doom be physical, spiritual, or even rhetorical. The thing is, we walk through life believing certain things and behaving certain ways, and we arrive at outcomes both individually and collectively as a result of how we approach circumstances and contribute to those outcomes. 
Doom is interesting endgame subject matter to Bizzotti, I think, whether it be encountered by the hero or the villain, whether it be unsettling, hilarious, tragic, or deserved, because it allows us all that moment of respite before consequence, where we might perhaps gain the opportunity to see things clearer or differently for just a moment. What are dragons to St. George, King Arthur, Jason and his Argonauts, other than villains to be slain? Gilgamesh, Beowulf, Hercules, how else are heroes self-defined, other than the legendary and presumably wicked beasts that it is their mandate to extinguish? And from the dragon, or serpent, or hydra's perspective, what else does it know but survival? Living in the abandoned spires of dilapidated stone towers, the dark, isolated caves of the distant mountains, the cold, quiet deep of the sea, what do they know or care of the violent agendas of the bold hero, these creatures of alleged virtue who define themselves in some quest that ends with the dragon's head cleaved off, or with a perfectly placed arrow to the heart? Our story this week, in typical Buzzati form, isn't a weird story because something weird happens. It's a weird story because nothing weird happens. Well, no, that's not entirely true. You'll see. This story was first published in 1965 in the anthology Catastrophe and Other Stories by Calder and Boyers LTD London and was translated by Judith Landry. So without further ado, we bring you The Slaying of the Dragon by Dino Buzzati. a peasant in the service of Count Gérald, one Jusue Lungo, who often went hunting in the mountains, reported that he had seen a large animal resembling a dragon in Valle Sica. Palisano, the last village in the valley, had long cherished a legend that one such monster was still living in certain arid passes in the region, but no one had ever taken it seriously. Yet on this occasion, Lungo's obvious sanity, the exactitude of his account, the absolutely accurate and unwavering repetition of details of the event, convinced people that there might be something in it, and Count Martino Gerald decided to go and find out. Naturally, he was not thinking in terms of a dragon, but it was possible that some huge, rare serpent was still living in those uninhabited valleys. He was to be accompanied on the expedition by the governor of the province, Quinto Andronico, and his beautiful and intrepid wife, the naturalist Professor Ingirami, and by his colleague Fusti, who was an expert in taxidermy. Quinto Andronico was a weak, skeptical man, and had known for some time that his wife felt drawn to Count Gerald, but this did not worry him. In fact, he agreed willingly when Maria suggested that they should accompany the Count on his hunt. He was not the least bit jealous, nor even envious, although Gerald was greatly superior to him in wealth, youth, good looks, strength, and courage. Two carriages left the town shortly after midnight, with an escort of eight mounted hunters, and arrived at Palisano at about six the following morning. Gerald, Maria, and the two naturalists slept, 
only Andronico remained awake, and he stopped the carriage in front of the house of an old friend of his, the doctor Tade. After a few moments, the doctor, woken by a coachman and still half asleep with a nightcap on his head, appeared at a first-floor window. Andronico greeted him jovially from below and explained the object of the expedition, expecting his listener to burst out laughing at the mention of dragons. To his surprise, Tade shook his head disapprovingly. "'I don't think I'd go if I were you,' he said firmly. "'Why not?' Don't you think there's anything to it? You think it's all a lot of nonsense? I don't know about that, replied the doctor. No, personally, I think there is a dragon, though I've never seen it, but I wouldn't get involved in this business. I don't like the sound of it. Don't like the sound of it? Do you mean you really believe in the dragon? <laughs> My dear sir, I'm an old man, said the doctor. And I've seen many things. It may be a lot of nonsense, but it might also be true. If I were you, I wouldn't get involved. And I warn you, the way is hard to find. The rocks are very unsafe, and you only need a gust of wind to precipitate sheer disaster. And there isn't a drop of water. Give up the whole thing, old boy. Why not go down to the Crochetta? He pointed toward a rounded, grassy hill rising behind the village. You'll find plenty of hares there. He was silent for a moment, then added, I assure you, I wouldn't go. I once heard it said, but it's useless. You'll only laugh. Why should I laugh? protested Andronico. Please go on. Well, some people say that this dragon gives off smoke, and it's poisonous, and a small quantity can somehow kill you. Forgetting his promise, Andronico laughed loudly. I always knew that you were reactionary, he snorted. Reactionary and eccentric. But this is too much. You're medieval, my dear, today. I'll see you this evening, and I'll be sporting that dragon's head. He waved goodbye, climbing back into the carriage, and ordered the coach to move on. Jusue Lungo, who was one of the hunters and knew the way, went at the head of the convoy. "'What was that old man shaking his head at?' inquired Maria, who had woken up in the interim. "'Nothing,' replied Andronico. "'It was only old today, who's an amateur vet. We were talking about foot and mouth disease.' "'And the dragon?' inquired Count Gerald, who was sitting opposite him. "'Did you ask him about the dragon?' "'No, I didn't, to be quite honest,' replied the governor. "'I didn't want to be laughed at. "'I told him we'd come up here to do a bit of hunting. "'That's all I said.' "'The passengers felt their weariness vanish as the sun rose. "'The horses moved faster and the coachmen began to hum. "'Tade used to be our family doctor. "'Once,' it was the governor speaking.' He had a fashionable practice. Then suddenly he retired and went into the country, perhaps because of some disappointment in love. Then he must have been involved in some other trouble and came to this one-eyed place. Lord knows where he could have gone from here. He'll be a sort of dragon himself soon. What nonsense, said Maria, rather annoyed. "'Always talking about this dragon. "'You've talked about nothing else since we left, "'and it's really become rather boring.' "'It was your idea to come,' 
replied her husband, mildly amused. Anyway, how could you know what we were talking about if you were asleep the whole way? Or were you just pretending? Maria did not reply, but looked worriedly out the window at the mountains, which were becoming higher, steeper, and more arid. At the far end of the valley there appeared a chaotic succession of peaks, mostly conical in shape and bare of woods or meadows, yellowish in color and incredibly bleak. The scorching sunlight clothed them in a hard, strong light of their own. It was about nine o'clock when the carriages came to a standstill, because the road came to an end. As they climbed down, the hunting party realized that they were now right in the heart of those sinister mountains. On close inspection, the rock of which the mountains were made looked rotten and friable, as though they were one vast landslide from top to bottom. Look, this is where the path starts, said Lungo, pointing to a trail of footsteps leading upward toward the mouth of a small valley. It was about three-quarters of an hour's journey from here to Burel, where the dragon had been seen. "'Have you seen about the water?' Andronico asked the hunters. "'There are four flasks and two of wine, Your Excellency,' one of them answered. "'That should be enough.' Odd. But now that they were so far from the town, locked in the mountains, the idea of the dragon began to seem less absurd.' The travelers looked around them but saw no signs of anything reassuring. Yellowish peaks where no human being had ever trod, endless little valleys winding off into the distance, complete desolation. They walked without speaking. First went the hunters with the guns, culverins, and other hunting equipment, and Maria, and lastly the two naturalists. Fortunately, the path was still in the shade. The sun would have been merciless amid all that yellow earth. The valley leading to the Burel was narrow and winding, too. There was no stream in its bed, and no grass or plants growing on its sides, only stones and debris, no birdsong or babble of water, only the occasional hiss of gravel. At a certain point, a young man appeared below them, walking faster than the hunting party, and with a dead goat slung over his shoulders. "'He's going to the dragon,' said Lungo, as if it were the most natural thing in the world to say. The inhabitants of the Palisano, he then explained, were highly superstitious, and sent a goat to the Burel every morning to placate the monster. The young men of the region took it in turns to take the offering.' If the dragon was heard to roar, this portended untold disaster. All kinds of misfortunes might follow. "'And the dragon eats the goat every day,' inquired Count Jeral, jokingly. "'There's nothing left of it the next day, that's for certain.' "'Not even the bones?' "'No, not even the bones. It takes the goat into the cave to eat it.' "'But couldn't it be someone from the village who eats the goat?' asked the governor. "'Everyone knows the way. Has no one ever really seen the dragon take the goat?' "'I don't know, Your Excellency,' replied the hunter. Meanwhile, the young man with the goat had caught up with them. "'Hey there, young man,' called Count Chiral, in his usual stentorian tones. "'How much do you want for that goat?' "'I can't sell it, sir,' he replied." Not even for ten crowns? Well, I could go get another one, I suppose, he weakened. For ten crowns? 
What do you want the goat for? Andronico inquired. Not to eat, I trust. You'll see in due course, replied Geral evasively. One of the hunters put the goat over his shoulders. The young man from Palisano set off back to the village, obviously to get another animal for the dragon, and the whole group moved off again. After another hour's journey, they finally arrived. The valley suddenly opened up into a vast, rugged amphitheater, the Burel, suddenly by crumbling walls of orange-colored earth and rock. Right in the center, on top of a cone-shaped heap of debris, was a blackened opening, the dragon's cave. That's it, said Lungo. They stopped quite near it, on a gravelly terrace, which offered an excellent observation point, about thirty feet above the level of the cave and almost directly in front of it. The terrace had the added advantage of not being accessible from below, because it stood at the top of an almost vertical wall. Maria could watch from there in absolute safety. They were all quiet, listening hard, but they could hear nothing except the endless silence of the mountains, broken by the occasional swish of gravel. Here and there lumps of earth would give way suddenly, streams of pebbles would pour down the mountainside and die down gradually. The whole countryside seemed to be in a state of constant dilapidation. These were mountains abandoned by their creator, being allowed to fall quietly to pieces. "'What if the dragon doesn't come out today?' inquired Quinto Andronico. "'Well, I've got the goat,' answered Geral. "'You seem to forget that.' Then they understood. The animal would act as bait to entice the dragon out of its lair. They began their preparations. Two hunters struggled up to the height of about twenty yards above the entrance to the cave, to be able to hurl down stones if necessary.' Another placed the goat on the gravelly expanse outside its cave. Others were posted at either side, well protected by large stones, with the culverins and guns. Andronico stayed where he was, intending to remain a spectator. Maria was silent. Her former boldness had vanished altogether. Although she wouldn't admit it, she would have given anything to be able to go back. She looked around at the wall of rocks, at the scars of the old landslides and the debris of the recent ones, at the pillars of red earth which looked to her as though they might collapse any minute. Her husband, Count Geral, the two naturalists, and the hunters seemed negligible protection in the face of such solitude. When the dead goat had been placed in front of the cave, they began to wait. It was shortly after ten o'clock, and the sun now filtered into every crevice of the Burel, filling it with its immense heat. Waves of heat were reflected back from one side to the other. The hunters organized a rough canopy with the carriage covers for the governor and his wife to shield them from the sun. Maria drank avidly. "'Watch out!' shouted Count Geral suddenly from his vantage point on a rock down on the scree, where he stood with a rifle in his hand and an iron club hanging from his hip. A shudder went through the company, and they held their breath as a live creature emerged from the mouth of the cave. "'The dragon! The dragon!' shouted several of the hunters, though whether in joy or terror it was not clear. The creature moved into the light with the hesitant sway of a snake." 
So here it was, this legendary monster whose voice made a whole village quake. Oh, how horrible, exclaimed Maria with evident relief, having expected something far worse. Come on, courage, shouted one of the hunters jokingly. Everyone recovered their self-assurance. Why, it looks like a small ceratosaurus, said Professor Injirami, now sufficiently confident to turn to the problems of science. The monster wasn't really very terrible, in fact, little more than six feet long, with a head like a crocodile's, only shorter, a long lizard-like neck, a rather swollen thorax, a short tail and floppy sort of crest along its back. But its awkward movements, its clay parchment color, with the occasional green streak here and there, and the general apparent flabbiness of its body, were even more reassuring than its small dimensions. The general impression was of extreme age. If it was a dragon, it was a decrepit dragon, possibly moribund. Take that, scoffed one of the hunters who had climbed above the mouth of the cave, and he threw a stone down toward the animal. It hit the dragon exactly on the skull. There was a hollow tock, like the sound of something hitting a gourd. Maria felt a movement of revulsion. The blow had been hard, but not sufficient. The reptile was still for a few moments, as though stunned, and then began to shake its head and neck from side to side, as if in pain. It opened and closed its jaws to reveal a set of sharp teeth, but it made no sound. Then it moved across the gravel toward the goat. Ha! Major Giddy, did they? cackled Count Geral, suddenly abandoning his arrogant pose. He seemed eager and excited in anticipation of the massacre. A shot from the culverin from a distance of about thirty yards missed its mark. The explosion tore the stagnant air. The rock faces howled with the echo, setting in motion innumerable diminutive landslides. There was a second shot almost immediately. The bullet hit the animal in one of its back paws, producing a stream of blood. "'Look at it leaping around!' exclaimed Maria. She, too, was now enthralled by this show of cruelty." In the agony of its wound, the animal had started to jump around in anguished circles. It drew its shattered leg after it, leaving a trail of black liquid on the gravel. At last, the reptile managed to reach the goat and to seize it with its teeth. It was about to turn around when Geral, to advertise his own daring, went right up to it and shot it in the head from about six feet away. A sort of whistling sound came from its jaws, and it was as though it were trying to control itself, to repress its anger, not to make as much noise as it could, as though some incentive unknown to mere men were causing it to keep its temper. The bullet from the rifle had hit it in the eye. After firing the shot, Count Geral drew back promptly and waited for it to collapse. But it didn't collapse. The spark of life within it seemed as persistent as a fire fed by pitch. The ball of lead lodged firmly in its eye. The monster calmly proceeded to devour the goat, and its neck swelled like rubber as the gigantic mouthfuls went down. Then it went back to the foot of the rocks and began to climb up the rock face beside the cave. It climbed with difficulty as the earth kept giving way beneath its feet, but it was obviously seeking a way of escape. 
Above it was an arch of clear, pale sky. The sun dried up the trails of blood almost immediately. It's like a cockroach in a basin, muttered Andronico to himself. What did you say? inquired his wife. Nothing, nothing, he replied. I wonder why it doesn't go into its cave, remarked Professor Injirami, calmly noting all the scientific aspects of the scene. It's probably afraid of being trapped, suggested Fusti. But it must be completely stunned, and I very much doubt whether a Soterosaurus is capable of such reasoning. A Soterosaurus... It's not a Soterosaurus, objected Fusti. I've restored several for museums, but they don't look like that. Where are the spines on its tail? Well, it keeps them hidden, replied Injirami. Look at that swollen abdomen. It tucks its tail underneath, and that's why it can't be seen. As they were talking, one of the hunters, the one who had fired the shot with the culverin, came running hurriedly toward the terrace where Andronico was, with the evident intention of leaving. "'Where are you going?' shouted Geral. "'Stay in your position until we've finished.' "'I'm going,' said the hunter firmly. "'I don't like it. This isn't what I call hunting.' "'What do you mean? That you're afraid? Is that it?' No, sir, I'm not afraid. You're afraid, I tell you, or you'd stay in your place. No, I'm not. But you, sir, you should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, ashamed of myself, cursed Martino Geral. You young swine, you're from Palacino, I suppose, and a coward. Get away before I teach you a lesson. And where are you going, young Beppy? He shouted again, seeing another hunter moving off. I'm going too, sir. I, I don't want to be involved in this horrible business. Oh, cowards, shrieked Gerald. Cowards, you'd pay for this if I could get it at you. It isn't fear, sir, repeated the second hunter. It's not fear, but this will end badly. You'll see. Oh, I'll show you how it'll end right now. And seizing a stone from the ground, the Count hurled it at the hunter with all his force. But it missed. There was a few moments' pause while the dragon scrambled about on the rock without managing to climb any higher. Earth and stones gave way and forced him back to his starting point. Apart from the sound of falling stones, there was silence. Then Andronico spoke. How much longer is this going to go on? He shouted to Gerald. It's fearful hot. Finish off the animal once for all, if you can. Why torture it like that, even if it is a dragon? Well, it's not my fault, answered Gerald, annoyed. Can't you see it's refusing to die? It's got a bullet in its skull, man, and it's, it's more lively than ever. He stopped speaking as the young man they'd seen earlier came over the brow of the rock with another goat over his shoulder. Amazed at the sight of the men, their weapons, the traces of blood, and above all the dragon, which he'd never seen outside of its cave, struggling on the rocks, he had stood still in his tracks and was staring at the whole strange scene. "'Oh, young man,' shouted Gerald, "'how much do you want for that goat?' Uh, nothing. I can't sell it, he replied. I wouldn't give it to you for its weight in gold. But what have you done to the dragon? 
he added, narrowing his eyes to look at the blood-stained monster. We're here to settle the matter once and for all. You should be pleased. No more goats from tomorrow. Why not? Well, because, well, because the dragon will be dead, replied the Count, smiling. But you can't, you can't do that, exclaimed the young man in terror. Don't you start too, shouted Chiral. Give me that goat at once. I said no, the man answered firmly, drawing back. Good God! The Count rushed him, punched him full in the face, seized the goat from his back, and threw him to the ground. You'll regret this one day, said the young man quietly, as he picked himself up, not daring to react more aggressively. But Count Gerald had turned his back on him. But now the whole valley basin was ablaze with the sun's heat, the glare from the yellow scree, the rocks, the stones, and the scree again was such that they could hardly keep their eyes open. There was nothing, absolutely nothing, remotely restful to the eye. Maria became more and more thirsty, and drink gave no relief. Good Lord, what heat, she moaned. Even the sight of Count Gerald began to pale. In the meantime, dozens of men had appeared, apparently springing from the earth itself. They had presumably come up from Palacino at the news that strangers were up at the Burrell, and they stood motionless on the brows of the various peaks of yellow earth, watching without a word. "'Fine audience you've got now,' remarked Andronico, in an attempt at a joke directed at Geral, who was involved in some maneuvers concerning the goat with two hunters. The young man looked up and saw the strangers staring at him. He assumed an expression of disdain and continued with what he was doing. The dragon, exhausted, had slithered down the rock face onto the gravel. It was lying there, motionless except for its swollen stomach, which was still throbbing. "'Ready?' shouted one of the hunters, lifting the goat from the ground with Shral's help. They had opened its stomach and put in an explosive charge with a fuse attached." The Count then advanced fearlessly across the scree until he was about thirty feet from the dragon and put the goat carefully on the ground and walked away, unwinding the fuse. They had to wait for half an hour before the creature moved. The strangers standing on the crests of the hills stood like statues, silent even amongst themselves. Their faces expressed cold disapproval. Indifferent to the sun, which was now immensely strong, they stared fixedly at the reptile, as though willing it not to move. But at last, the dragon, with another bullet in its back, turned suddenly, saw the goat, and dragged itself slowly towards it. It was about to stretch out its head and seize its prey when the Count lit the fuse. The spark ran rapidly along it, reached the goat, and then the charge exploded. The report was not loud, much less so in fact than the culverin shots, sharp yet muffled, like a plank bleeding. Yet the dragon's body was hurled violently backwards, its belly had obviously been ripped open. Once again the head began to move slowly from side to side, as though it were saying no, that it wasn't fair, that they had been too cruel and that there was now no more it could do. The Count laughed gleefully, but this time he laughed alone. 
Oh, how awful. That's enough, gasped Maria, covering her face with her hands. Yes, said her husband slowly. I I agree, this, this may end badly. The monster was lying in a pool of black blood, apparently exhausted, and now from each of its two flanks there rose a column of dark smoke, one on the left and one on the right, two slow-moving plumes rising, it seemed, with difficulty. Do you see that? said Injirami to his colleague. I do, affirmed the other. Two blowholes, just like those of the Ceterosaurus, the so-called Operculia Hammeriana. No, said Fusti, it's not a Ceterosaurus. At this juncture, Gerald emerged from behind the boulder, where he'd been hiding and came forward to deliver the final blow. He was right in the middle of the stretch of gravel with his iron club in hand when the assembled company gave a shriek. For a moment, Gerald thought it was a shout of triumph for the slaying of the dragon. Then he became aware of movement behind him. He turned around sharply and saw, ridiculous, two pathetic little creatures tumbling out of the cave and coming toward him at some speed. Two small, half-formed reptiles, no more than two feet long, diminutive versions of the dying dragon. Two small dragons, its children, probably driven out of the cave by hunger. It was a matter of minutes. The Count gave a wonderfully skillful performance. Take that and that, he shouted gleefully, swinging the iron club, and two blows were enough, aimed strongly and decisively. The club struck the two little monsters one after the other and smashed in their heads like glass bowls. They collapsed and lay dead, looking from a distance like half-deflated bagpipes. But now the strangers, without a word, turned and fled up the stony gullies as though from some unexpected danger. Without making a sound, without dislodging a pebble or turning for a moment to look at the dragon's cave, they disappeared as mysteriously as they had come. Now the dragon was moving again. It seemed as though it were never going to make the final effort to die, dragging itself like a snail and still giving off two puffs of smoke. It went toward the two little dead creatures. When it had reached them, it collapsed onto the stones and stretched out its head with infinite difficulty and began to lick them gently, perhaps hoping to resuscitate them. Finally, the dragon seemed to collect all its remaining strength. It raised its neck toward the sky to emit, first very softly, but then with a rising crescendo, an unspeakable, incredible howl, a sound neither animal nor human, but one so full of loathing that even Count Gerald stood still, paralyzed with horror. Now they saw why it had not wanted to go back to its den, where it could have found shelter, and why it hadn't roared or howled, but merely hissed. The dragon was thinking of its children. To save them, it had given up its own hope of escape. For if it had hidden in its cave, the men would have followed it and discovered its young. And had it made any noise, the little creatures would have come out to see what was happening. Only now, once it had seen them die... Did the monster give this terrible shriek? It was asking for help and for vengeance for its children. 
But from whom? From the mountains, parched and uninhabited? From the birdless, cloudless sky? From those men who were torturing it? The shriek pierced the walls of rock and the dome of the sky. It filled the whole world. Unreasonably enough, it seemed completely impossible that there should be some reply. Who can it be calling? said Andronico, trying in vain to adopt a light-hearted tone. I mean, who's it calling? There's, there's no one coming, as far as I can see. Oh, if only it would die, said the woman. But the dragon would not make up its mind to die, even though Count Geral, suddenly maddened by the desire to conclude this business once and for all, shot it with the rifle. Two shots. In vain. The dragon continued to lick its dead children, even more slowly, yet surely a whitish liquid was welling up in its unhurt eye. The Saurian, exclaimed Professor Injirami. Look, it's crying, the governor said. It's late, everyone. That's, that's enough. Martino, it's time to go. Seven times the monster raised its voice, and the rocks and sky resounded. The seventh time it seemed as though the sound were never going to end, but then it suddenly ceased, dropped like a plumb line, vanished into silence. In the deathly quiet that followed, there was a sound of coughing. Covered with dust, his face covered with effort, weariness, and emotion, Count Geral, throwing his rifle down among the stones, came across the debris, coughing, with one hand pressed to his chest. "'What is that?' asked Andronico, no longer joking, but with a strange presentiment of disaster. "'What happened?' "'Nothing,' said Geral, trying to sound unconcerned. "'I, I just... I swallowed a bit of smoke. What smoke? Gerald didn't reply, but indicated towards the dragon with his hand. The monster was lying still, its head stretched out on the stones, except for the two slight plumes of smoke. It looked quite dead indeed. I think it's all over, said Andronico. It did indeed seem so. The last breath of obstinate life was coming from the dragon's mouth. No one had answered his call. No one in the whole world had responded. The mountains were quite still. Even the diminutive landslides seemed to have been reabsorbed. The sky was clear without the slightest cloud, and the sun was setting. No one, either from this world or the next, had come to avenge the massacre. Man had blotted out this last remaining stain from the world, man so powerful and cunning that wherever he goes he establishes wise laws for maintaining order, irreproachable man who works so hard for the cause of progress and cannot bring himself to allow the survival of dragons, even in the heart of the mountains. Man had been the executioner and recrimination would have been pointless. What man had done was right, absolutely in accordance with the law. Yet it seemed impossible that no one should have answered the last appeal. Andronico, his wife, and the hunters all wanted to escape from the place without more ado. Even the two naturalists were willing to give up the usual embalming procedure in order to get away more quickly. 
The men from the village had disappeared as though they had felt forebodings of disaster. The shadows climbed the walls of loose rock. The two plumes of smoke continued to rise from the dragon's shriveled carcass, curling slightly in the still air. All seemed over now, an unhappy incident to be forgotten as soon as possible. But Count Geral went on coughing. Exhausted, he was seated on a boulder, and his friends around him did not dare speak to him. Even the fearless Maria averted her gaze. The only sound was his sharp coughing, followed in the distance by the muffled coughs of others. All attempts at controlling it were unsuccessful. There was some sort of fire burning ever deeper within. I knew it, whispered Andronico to his wife, who was trembling. I knew this would end badly. And that was our story. I knew it would end badly. Perfect words to sum up a lot of Buzzati's work. It's almost a declaration of principle. It has nothing to do with excessive foreshadowing or predictable endings. No, leave that to half of Hollywood to take care of. This is literally about that feeling of knowing something will end badly, sitting in that feeling, really getting in good with it. No doubt there are things in your life, our lives even, where it hits home and this feeling is present. There's nothing crazy or unique about that, nothing new under the sun. There are those of us who say, you can't do that, you can't, like the village youth. There are those who cough and try to sound unconcerned, just swallowed a bit of smoke, like Geral. It's nothing really. There are those who stand aghast that a terrifying appeal can echo throughout the hills and no one answer the call, no one in the whole world or the next to respond and avenge a wrongdoing. And then there are dragons and beasts of the lonesome, arid Burrell, who are perhaps a bit more used to the mountains being still and quiet than the rest of us. It's unsettling to see that, to feel it, stirring a fire deep within us, as Buzzati says. No wonder we seek to end them. Let's close things out with our 100-character Twitvic story this week by listener A Tiny Sloth. Here goes. I often wonder of the bullet man's thoughts as he flies naked across the sky, unstoppable, supersonic. One hundred character stories, we call them twabbles. We pick one from the forums as the winner of our weekly contest and post it out early on Twitter for people to read at our Twitter feed at Drabblecast. Give it a shot. You can do it. We believe in you. Go to our forums at forums.drabblecast.org. Well, folks, that's our show this week. Remember that Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. 
Write us a review on iTunes or elsewhere on the internet. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. And if you're feeling generous and enjoyed our show this week, consider making a donation to the Drabblecast at our website, www.drabblecast.org. Find the donations option there on the right. You can make a donation in any amount, or subscribe for $5 a month, or for $10 a month, and become a Drabblecast B-Sides member, where you get extra monthly content. And most importantly, you help support your favorite podcast. Help us pay authors professional rates, artists, and keep the show going. We greatly appreciate it. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Treblecast art director who came in as a pinch hit, did an awesome job, Bo Kyer. Find him at bokyer.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Bo Kyer, Tom Baker, Samantha Henderson, Sandra O'Dell, Melissa Harvey, a single sneaker in your lawn that smells like cat pee, Jason Smith, Adam Protz, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, it's definitely not a Ceterosaurus.